This is Time and Other Thieves, Reflections and Conversations on the Nature of Existence, I guess. That's what it used to be when it was a weekly radio show that I then converted into podcast format. But as of this January, Time and Other Thieves became a different kind of show. Instead of making a new episode every week, I now make them once a month. And instead of each episode focusing on a book or a guest interview, they're now a way for me to share various things I've read and otherwise explored since the last episode went live. So I'm not sure what the new tagline should be. Maybe Time and Other Thieves, Reflections on Another Month of Living and Learning. I'm Sarah B., and since the last installment of the program, I have continued, when my work schedule allowed, to devote at least two hours a day to writing personal essays with the ultimate goal of getting them published. And it has not been going well. I did get the expected rejection from The Sun magazine for an essay I finished in early February and mentioned in the last episode. In that episode, I also said that upon receiving that rejection, I would then submit the essay to another publication, but I've decided not to do that because I simply don't think it's good enough for any publication. It never ceases to amaze me how delusional I can be about my own writing when it's newly written. I'm starting to learn the value of letting a piece of writing sit for at least a couple weeks, but preferably a month or more, before reading it again and deciding if it's ready to submit somewhere. I'm also learning that it could be a long time, years even, before I write something that feels publishable, let alone something that a literary journal would feel the same way about. When I made the decision to pursue my writing with more discipline, I pictured myself cranking out stories and essays the way I cranked out weekly Time and Other Thieves scripts for 18 months straight. I pictured a constant cycle of writing, revising, and submitting for publication, that's not what's happening at all. Instead, I have discovered that I don't have much to write about. With Time and Other Thieves, the radio show, my subject matter was clear. Reflect on the ideas presented in a given book, applying those ideas to my life and or to current events. But I'd had enough of that kind of writing and wanted to make my life and my ideas the sole focus. The actual process of doing that, though, has created all kinds of doubt in me. Every real-life story I've tried to tell has ultimately petered out in a desolate sigh. What's the point? Nobody cares that you experience this. There's nothing at stake here. I've been wondering if I really am supposed to be a writer, if my decision to focus on psychotherapy as a career path was actually born of deep wisdom more than laziness or fear of failure. But if I'm not supposed to be a writer, would it feel so terribly depressing to even consider that? A true non-writer wouldn't care, right? After the seventh or eighth failed attempt at a personal essay in about the same number of weeks, after a morning of literally staring at my computer screen for what felt like an eternity, unable to think of anything worth capturing in words, I turned to my bookshelf for guidance, and to one book in particular. It was a book I used as an undergrad at Appalachian State about 20 years ago when taking a creative writing nonfiction class with my favorite teacher of all time, Joseph Bethanti. Written by Philip Gerard and published in 1996, the book is simply titled Creative Nonfiction with the subtitle Researching and Crafting Stories of Real Life. I decided that reading about writing would have to count toward my two hours of writing that day, and for however many days I needed it to. 
After reading just a few pages of creative nonfiction, I felt inspired to write again. Or rather, I felt inspired to put more research into my writing. In his book, Gerard writes at length on the importance of conducting research when writing nonfiction, even when what the bulk of what you're writing, as in the case with the personal essay, is about your own personal experience. He talks about the book Refuge by Terry Tempest Williams, whose great strength, he argues, is its interweaving of information about a migratory bird refuge threatened by the rising waters of Great Salt Lake, which Williams explores in juxtaposition to her mother's recent cancer diagnosis. Readers not only learn about the writer's experience of witnessing her mother's illness and possible demise, but they experience it in a bigger way because of the parallel storyline about the bird refuge. Metaphors arise that would not exist if Williams were only writing about her mother. Gerard says that Williams does the human arithmetic precisely in a voice we can trust. The statistical balance of breeding species, the ratio of habitat to survival, the equation between nuclear testing in the 1950s and cancer rates in the 1980s. Gerard asserts that readers want to learn things, which they aren't going to do if the writer isn't learning anything in the act of writing. It's basically the idea of no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. I tend to be what Stephen King would call a pantser when it comes to writing, meaning that I write by the seat of my pants, not knowing exactly where things will go or even what I'm ultimately trying to say. I trust that I will figure things out as I go along. Pantsing is in stark contrast to plotting, or having everything planned out, even making an actual outline. Stephen King, by the way, is a pantser, not a plotter. Sometimes writing by the seat of my pants works out. I write to discover what I think, to quote the historian Daniel J. Borston. But then there are times, like more recently, when I discover nothing. A piece might go in a direction I hadn't expected, but that's not necessarily a good thing. It's a digression more than a satisfying surprise. What's really being made clear is that my writing has no focus. In the last episode, I talked about an essay I'd written about noise, in homage or response to an essay that the Stoic philosopher Seneca wrote sometime around the year 60 CE, called On Noise. After letting my essay sit for a week and reading over it again, I realized it lacked focus. Philip Gerard's emphasis on research inspired me to basically start the essay over from scratch and incorporate more research on noise, noise pollution in particular, which was something Seneca didn't know a thing about. Ooh, now it's occurring to me that I could write the essay in the form of a letter to Seneca, informing him about noise in the 21st century, and an epistolary approach would make sense because Seneca's noise essay was actually a letter, too, written to the civil servant Lucilius, then procurator of Sicily. And see, I probably wouldn't have had that idea if I hadn't written about it for this time another thief script. Anyway, I did start my essay over, revisioning it as more of an article about the harmful effects of too much noise, and less of a rant about my experience of noise. It wound up reading like more of a college research paper than I would have hoped, though, and ultimately felt pointless, but I did really enjoy the research process and trying to write in a new way. I also took a more researchy tack with a new essay about buyer's remorse, or regret more broadly, 
using as a real-life example my recent experience of buying a 1966 Chevy Nova and instantly regretting it. That piece also wound up feeling amateurish and pointless, but also didn't feel like a total waste of time because I so enjoyed the research piece, which gave me the pleasure of pondering ideas, phenomena, social trends, etc., as well as historical figures, and not just my own mind. So I think I'm on the right track with incorporating more research into my writing. I just haven't found the right subject matter yet. Maybe. I've also been thinking about fiction writing, perhaps as a result of feeling defeated in the nonfiction realm. A few nights ago, I started rereading John Gardner's On Becoming a Novelist. I first read it when I was writing my own novel for my master's thesis at NC State, the only novel I've ever written, and I've been thinking it would retain that status in perpetuity, given my enduring lack of interest in tackling the long fiction form again. But now I'm getting little stirrings. Maybe I could write another novel. I don't know what it would be about, but I could pants it and just see what happens. In the last episode, I talked a little bit about a novella I'd just read, Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams, but had otherwise been focusing my energy on the personal essay form, trying to learn as much as I could by example. I took a break from that in choosing to read the Gerard book and now the Gardner book. I've also been reading a memoir of sorts called The Darker the Night, The Brighter the Stars, copyright 2018 by Paul Brocks. Its subtitle is A Neuropsychologist's Odyssey Through Consciousness. My husband gave it to me for Christmas two or three years ago, and I finally decided to give it a whirl. In the prologue, Brocks writes, This is not a conventional book, and I think you should know what you're in for. What? I hope you're about to read is a mix of memoir, neurological case stories, and reflections on life, death, and the mind. I've thrown some Greek myths into the pot, sundry other tales, some true, some not. I'm taking my time with the book. It's not blowing my mind or anything, but the writing pulls me along effortlessly, and I'm learning lots of interesting stuff. With its mix of psychological case studies, diary entries, and philosophical musings, it's right up my alley. Very good gift-giving on my husband's part. In my car, since I finished listening to the Best American Essays of 2022, I've been listening to a book called The First Bad Man, copyright 2015, by Miranda July, her debut novel. Laura Miller at The Guardian called it strenuously quirky and a sentimental tale of a misfit's quest for love, but I would have been more generous in my review. Prior to starting this novel, I'd only read one of July's short stories, The Metal Bowl, and watched one of her films, The Future, both of which established her in my mind as one of the great weirdo geniuses of our day. Her work is bizarre and somehow ineffably relatable, her characters deeply disturbed at times, simultaneously repulsive and compelling, then sympathetic. She had me sold on the narrator of The First Bad Man, when early on in the book, said narrator, 40-something Cheryl, is scheduling a follow-up appointment in a doctor's office, talking with the receptionist, and she learns that the doctor only sees patients for a few months out of the year and that for the rest of the time he's not in the office at all. Cheryl's first response is to ask, Who will water these plants? And she sticks her finger into the soil of a plant that's in arm's reach. She feels that the soil is wet, and isn't sure what to wipe her finger on. 
The receptionist hands her a Kleenex for her finger and informs Cheryl that another doctor uses the office during those months, and she waters the plants. Miranda July reads the audio version of The First Bad Man herself, which is an extra treat because her voice is so unique and I think only she would really know how to read her work properly in the correct wry tone. But back to noise and regret. I want to share some of what I learned in researching those topics. I'll start with regret. I watched an excellent TED Talk by Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Katherine Schultz and learned that the number one most common regret for people is in regards to education. They wish they'd gotten more of it or studied other things. The second most common regret, clearly related to the first, has to do with career, and the third has to do with romance. Financial regrets are quite low on the list, only accounting for about 3% of people's overall regret. So Schultz says, if you have buyer's remorse about something, let it go. You probably won't care in five years' time or less. I also learned from Schultz's lecture that researchers have identified four components of regret. Denial, make it go away. Bewilderment, I can't believe I did that. Punishment, I could kick myself and perseveration, which is thinking the same thoughts over and over again. I experienced all of those components in the extreme early stages of my Nova regret. I also watched an interview with Daniel H. Pink, who wrote a book last year called The Power of Regret, and learned about what he identifies as the four core regrets. These regrets have to do with boldness, wishing we'd been more bold in our choices, connection, wishing we'd nurtured intimacy more, sexual or otherwise, morality, wishing we'd taken the high road instead of the low, and with our foundation, wishing we'd had more foresight and conscientiousness, setting ourselves up for more success later on. Pink says that in the giant world regret survey he conducted, and is still conducting, it's open to the public, nobody reported that they regretted ever being too bold. Nobody that is, until I took the survey. I bought the Nova because it was a bold thing to do, because I don't typically do that sort of bold thing, and I wanted to see how it felt. I quickly learned it felt awful. Maybe Pink would argue that my purchase wasn't actually an act of boldness, as he might define it, but of rebellion. I was rebelling against the parts of me that identified with being practical and prudent, the parts that said, you're not someone who can buy a classic car, that's for other people. I regret my purchase not because it was bold, perhaps, but because it went against some of my deepest values. Maybe Pink was referring specifically to acts of boldness that are in line with one's values. Along the same vein, Schultz points out in her TED Talk that the definition of regret, the emotion we experience when we think that our present situation could be better or happier if we'd done something different in the past, implies that two things must be present for regret to exist. Agency, or the power to choose, and imagination. She also says that the more one has of each, the worse their regret will be. That definitely tracks with my Nova experience, a choice that I deliberated over for weeks, imagining how fun it would be to drive the thing on sunny days. After buying it, my imagination went to town on how much easier life would be and how much more financial security I'd have without it. So much of my deciding to buy the Nova 
was based in the adage that it's better to regret the things you do than the things you don't do. I think we can only apply this notion, though, to the deliberate choices we make, as opposed to the things we say or do without thinking, the things that cause harm to others and therefore result in our own painful regret. Definitely better to not do those things, but when it comes to the actions we exercise real choice around and put a lot of thought into, they say it's better to commit those actions than to not, or rather it's better to regret those actions than to regret not doing them. A significant distinction there. Because when we don't do something, there's nothing for us to learn from. At least when we regret something we've done, we have past actions to learn from and we can then focus on doing better next time. I'd also posit that the regret felt over not doing something is more painful than that felt over doing something because we'll never know what might have been if we'd done the thing. And that not knowing drives us crazy. Still, I find it hard to believe that the regret I might have experienced over not buying the Nova would have been worse than the regret I experienced over buying it. But I guess I'll never know for sure. I hope to sell the car very soon. And as for noise, in the process of doing research for that essay, I learned that one of the loudest sounds human beings make happens underwater. Seismic air gun blasting industry's method for finding oil and gas deposits in the ocean floor, emits a sound so loud that marine mammals in a 2,500-mile radius can hear it. On land, that would be like someone in Mexico City hearing a gunshot all the way from New York City. And it doesn't just happen once. It is repeated every 10 seconds for days, weeks, or months at a time. I'd beach myself, too, if I were a whale. And seismic air guns, more like cannons really, are just one of many tools with which we sonically rape our oceans. I learned that some scientists are calling ambient noise what so many people, especially city dwellers, are steeping in on a daily basis, the new secondhand smoke. Most of this noise is created by automobiles and airplanes, but also lawnmowers and other lawn care equipment and road construction machinery. Many people don't even notice ambient noise until it hinders their ability to carry on a conversation at a reasonable volume, but that doesn't mean it's harmless. Exposure to so much noise increases stress hormone levels and has been linked to hypertension and heart disease. I learned about a woman named Julia Barnett Rice, who was a visionary when it came to recognizing the harmful effects of noise on humans. Rice was a mother of six, a degree-holding student of medicine, and an accomplished musician living in New York City's Upper West Side at the turn of the 20th century. In her home right next to the river, relatively safe from the ever-loudening din created by automobiles, already an aural nuisance in 1905, Rice was made aware of another noisemaker, the tugboat. She founded the Society for the Suppression of Unnecessary Noise, whose efforts helped pass the Bennett Act two years later, in 1907. This act regulated tugboats' unnecessary whistling. Rice and others of her ilk knew when a whistle wasn't necessary and would report the tugboat captain, and he'd be issued a fine. 
The resulting quieter waterway greatly improved the lives of Columbia University students and Bellevue Hospital patients alike, providing the former with an environment more conducive to study and concentration, and the latter with one less likely to trigger mental disturbance. Some Bellevue patients imagined a tugboat's whistle was the sound of demons coming after them, and more supportive of physical healing. Today, of course, automobiles, airplanes, boats, and other engine-powered tools aren't the only noisemakers we contend with. It's hard to find a gas station these days whose pumps aren't equipped with tiny televisions blaring celebrity news and other equally unnecessary information. Since we can't shut our ears, we have no choice but to hear this noise while we stand there pumping, as if the noise of passing traffic wasn't enough. The ubiquity of cell phones means we're too often privy to a stranger's conversation, or at least that stranger's side of it. I recently had no choice but to sit right next to a guy in a busy airport terminal who was conducting business calls in a loud voice, as if I and everyone in a 20-foot radius wanted to hear him delegate. Then there was that woman in the used furniture store who sat jabbering away on a love seat like she was just sitting in her living room. Hearing is actually a way of being touched, if you think about it. Sound waves literally cause the eardrum to vibrate, and those vibrations set the ossicles, the three tiny bones of the middle ear, in motion, causing fluid in the snail-shaped cochlea of the inner ear to move, causing 25,000 nerve endings to move, and finally, mysteriously transform the vibrations into electrical impulses that travel to the brain. Encounters with unwanted noise are therefore comparable to those with unwanted touch. I was trying to read a book in that airport terminal, but the voice of the guy next to me kept bumping up against my ear bones. As did, of course, the noise of a nearby television, so I was too distracted to carry on with an activity that would have distracted no one. Here is the mutiny that needs to be suppressed, to use Seneca's words. The mutiny is not, as Seneca argued, the cacophony of voices in one's head, but the constant chatter of other people in one's environment, be they in the flesh, on a screen, or broadcast over a loudspeaker. We can't address the inner cacophony without first eliminating the outer one, or at least reducing it. Even music played at a reasonable volume in a doctor's office waiting room is a kind of aural assault. I don't go to the doctor to listen to music, especially not top 40 commercial radio with its obnoxious advertisements and canned sound effects. Same goes for the grocery store. Music shouldn't be played in a place unless people have come to that place to hear that music. At the very least, it should be instrumental music only and played at a low volume. This edict excludes record stores. Other than reading about noise and regret and the craft of creative nonfiction writing and still chipping away at Awakening the Buddha Within by Lama Shuri Das, I have also, since the last episode, read all the nonfiction selections in the fall 2022 issue of Agni, which is my favorite of the literary journals I've read since starting that exploration. I've also started in on the nonfiction selections in the most recent issue of the Alaska Quarterly Review, which looks quite promising. I don't expect to write anything anytime soon that would be worthy of those publications. I will do my best, though. And meanwhile, I'm also pursuing a second career as an editor. I had an hour-long, very expensive clarity call with a well-established freelance editor named Molly McCowan of Inkbot Editing, 
and she inspired me to become a member of the Editorial Freelancers Association and take some of their webinars, discounted and sometimes free for members. And from there, I might be inspired to start chipping away at an editing certificate program, such as the ones offered by the universities of Chicago and San Diego. I've got some editing-related books coming in the mail and have already started the process of making a website for my business. Once that's up and running, I will start spreading the word and trying in earnest to get clients. Here in the beginning, I'm just going to focus on copy editing and line editing, but eventually I'd like to do developmental editing as well. Just this week, I watched the 2016 film Genius about legendary literary editor Maxwell Perkins, played by Colin Firth, and his relationship with Asheville's own Thomas Wolfe, played by Jude Law. I ordered the book that the film is based on, Max Perkins, editor of Genius, as well as a book of Perkins's letters to his most famous authors, including Hemingway and Fitzgerald. I'm also very excited to eventually watch the new documentary film, Turn Every Page, about the relationship between Pulitzer Prize-winning author Robert Caro and his editor, Robert Gottlieb, whenever it becomes available for streaming online. Geeking out and loving it. All right, that is all I have to say for this installment of Time and Other Thieves. My name's Sarah B., and I will most likely check back in next month, hopefully with news that I've sold the Nova, or I'm very close to selling it, and maybe even with news that I've gotten an editing client or two. Thank you so much for listening, and take good care.